is the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Lilith. And my name is Allison, and this is the podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development in Edmonton Association, a nonprofit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our city. And today's guest is Nicholas Brewbottom. He's the executive director of IDEA. With six years of industry experience, Nicholas understands the vital role of infill in addressing economic and environmental challenges being faced by cities today. He values his advocacy work with IDEA and the contributions he's made to educational programming for IDEA's membership and the wider infill community. Nicholas possesses a unique educational background, holding a Bachelor of Fine Arts and Bachelor of Arts from the University of Regina, a Master of Arts from the University of Alberta, and having pursued doctoral studies at King's College London during a two and a half year stint in the UK. Despite his distinct path in the industry, he views his lived experience as an asset to his current work. Before becoming the executive director, Nicholas served as the co-chair of IDEA's policy committee, actively engaging in projects such as the zoning bylaw renewal and district planning initiatives. Additionally, he advocates for Alberta's queer business community as vice chair of Alberta's LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce. In our conversation today, we talked to Nicholas um, about IDEA and what's been going on in the last year. We talked a little bit about district planning and IDEA's position on the district plans that are currently in draft form. We also talked about what happened in 2023 and all the great events that took place. And then we talked about what's going to happen in 2024. So some of the uh, events that are happening for IDEA, as well as changes to the infill certification program. Before we get into our discussion with Nicholas, Lilith and I are going to go over some definitions of terms that we mentioned during our interview um, that you might not be familiar with. So during our discussion uh, about district planning, we talked about ASPs and ARPs. So these are area structure plans and area redevelopment plans, and they're land use plans that the city of Edmonton has, and they provide details on the growth and development for specific areas of the city. So all these uh, land use plans include information on design principles, function and land use, as well as infrastructure. And then they generally also address density and land use statistics and include land use concept maps and other supporting maps for the plan. So the other definition we talked about during the interview were nodes and corridors. This is a really great concept um, that the city of Edmonton is taking on. They've uh, taken this approach to planning and have put in um, some really great policies in the city plan for nodes and corridors. And to just briefly explain it, nodes are these destination uh, gathering spots. An example would be LRT station areas and other destinations. There's uh, major nodes, district nodes, uh, and they all serve different catchment areas. And then the corridors. Um, so corridors are basically streets with frequent transit service, you know, certain urban forms that have been assigned to them. Again, you have your primary corridors and uh, secondary corridors, and um, the, the difference between them is how big and intense the, the vibrancy is within them and how major of a, a transportation route that corridor is. 
The next term that we want to define for you today is the Expedited Infill Pilot Program. This is a pilot from the city of Edmonton and IDEA, and it was intended to encourage better construction practices and improve permitting process timelines and consistencies. So it offered expedited development permit review timelines for participants. And we get into a chat about that with Nicholas during the interview. Okay, and the last thing we wanted to define for you is an event that we talked about during the interview, so the Be Infill event. And we did talk about it in the previous podcast episodes, but I don't think we've ever really um, defined it for what it was. So um, here's our chance. So Be Infill stands for Building Equity in Infill. Uh, so this is a series of events that was established in 2023 uh, and is going to continue going in 2024. Um, it focuses on raising awareness for intersectionality in the workplace and advancing the professional development of marginalized individuals in the infill industry. So um, this includes, but definitely isn't limited to members and allies of women, uh, the LGBTQIA plus and other racialized communities. Hopefully that's a good list of uh, terms for everyone to know before we get into it. Thanks for that, Lilith. So without further ado, let's get into our chat with Nicholas. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Uh, Allison and I are really excited to have you here today uh, to hear you talk a little bit about district planning, uh, about IDEA, what's, uh, what's been done, what's coming in 2024. And uh, of course, we'd love to hear a little bit more about yourself too. Um, so why don't you start telling us a little bit about yourself and some things that you think the audience might want to hear? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. I was really excited when you guys asked me. I do have kind of an interesting background to talk about a little bit in terms of how I came into the position. Uh, I don't have that traditional story that you might expect. Uh, I didn't go to university for planning or for human geography or anything like that. Um, when I started my university journey... Uh, I actually went to school for music, and it had been my intention to um, study musicology, which is kind of like the anthropology of music, um, and teach in a university setting. That was my end goal. Uh, so I went to school for about 11 years, uh, did four degrees. <laughs> uh, my first couple of degrees were in my hometown in Regina, Saskatchewan. I uh, did a degree in music, did a degree in history, also met my husband there. Uh, then we moved to Edmonton, uh, where I started a master's program in musicology. That was my first kind of experience to Edmonton living. Um, I really fell in love with this city. There's so many things that I like in the way the city is laid out and some of the interesting, fun things you can do here in terms of it being a festival city, good music, that kind of stuff. Uh, we lived here for about three years and then moved to to the, uh, the UK, actually, we moved overseas. Um, and I lived in London for uh, about three and a half years, uh, again, doing a PhD in music at the time. And this is where it kind of got interesting and my whole life sort of changed direction a bit. Um, so as I was nearing the end of my PhD program and sort of figuring out what's the next steps, uh, it wasn't a great time for fine arts programs in general. Uh, there were a lot of budget cuts to various fine arts programs, and it looked like my academic journey in music was going to take a lot longer if I wanted to go that route. Um, and my husband and I decided that it was time to sort of reset, uh, move back to Canada, and kind of consider our options. 
And it had been my plan to go into fine arts, um, nonprofit work, because I had done that before. Uh, but at the time, there actually wasn't really a lot of opportunities that were appealing to me. Um, so I took a job instead working for a private developer here in Edmonton. So that seems like a strange segue, uh, but there's a couple of reasons why I think that fit well for me. Uh, first of all, I have always been kind of in love with urbanism as a concept. Um, living in cities has always been something that's very important to me. I don't drive, so being connected to a community is really important to me. And, you know, we talk in Edmonton about 15-minute communities or 15-minute districts. When I lived in London, it was five-minute districts. Uh, basically, I could go anywhere I wanted and do anything I needed to do within five minutes of my house. And having that was just amazing. Um, Nicholas, that's a wonderful story you uh, you just told us. It's so so unconventional, just like you said. In in the planning world, uh, it's often seen as a strength to have an undergraduate degree in something completely different that you can later connect to planning and placemaking and city building. So uh, my question to you is, in your opinion and in your experience, um, how much does your uh, background in art or in general, how much does art and community art influence livability of a city or uh, placemaking elements of a city? Oh, I think it has a major impact on it. Um, to kind of not to get too intellectual here or anything, but when I was doing my PhD and working on my final thesis, uh, my thesis was all about music making in city spaces um, and how the two kind of were interconnected. Um, and one thing about London living is you don't really have that connection to nature. And over history, they've really tried to create that connection to nature in artificial ways. So that's why horticulture and gardening is so important within British traditions um, and why they have this rich history of landscape paintings that have come about. Um, and there was this particular period in history uh, surrounding the 18th century landscape painting that really influenced a lot of London um, artists and composers specifically um, at the time because they were trying to bring in the rural tempestuousness of the countryside into a city landscape um, and wanted to draw from that to kind of enrich their lives and add a dimension into city living that wasn't there. So translate that to modern day. I think it's really cool when we see different ways in which you can bring things that are outside day-to-day -day living into day-to-day -day living. And you can do that with placemaking when you're really sensitive of the people that are actually occupying that space and the activities and things that they want to do within that space. So I, I think there's so many options and so much uh, diverse living that can be created when you start thinking about the way in which your environment can impassion you and inspire you to do the things that you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Thanks for that answer. It's, uh, it's great to hear from an expert in the field on how to connect these two seemingly unrelated topics. Certainly um, a fresh idea for me to hear. Um, so you mentioned you started out uh, working for a private developer in Edmonton when you moved uh, back from the UK. And then um, eventually you got involved with IDEA. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. 
Yeah, the reason I started working for a private developer is when I was growing up, my dad was actually a general contractor. So I was connected to construction, just sort of at the periphery of my life. I remember growing up and as a teenager, I did home and garden shows all the time and would connect with people that were looking to do renovations to their homes. Um, so it wasn't a stretch to start working for somebody that did development, although I'd never worked for anybody that did new development specifically. I worked for a multifamily developer that mostly did projects in the West End of Edmonton. And I worked for him for about six years. And kind of my area of interest was actually the connection between our projects and the city of Edmonton. And by city of Edmonton, I mean like the actual institution city of Edmonton. Um, and I did mostly permitting, inspections, getting projects kind of started on their feet and then bringing them to the end, bringing them to fruition. Um, I also did a lot of procurement work. So I always kind of joke that I have no idea if I'm on site how to actually build a house, but I know everything that goes into the building of a house in terms of the trades that you have to work with, the contracts that need to be negotiated, that kind of stuff. So over about four and a half years, um, I just worked for Eden, my boss, uh, but he also was originally a member of IDEA. He was one of the founding 50. Uh, so he was all, always kind of connected to IDEA in one way or another. But when new zoning bylaw was starting to really gain traction and we were starting to engage as an industry more with that particular initiative, he asked if I would get more involved with IDEA in some of the work that was being done. And eventually this led uh, to me putting up myself for an open position on the board. And I was elected to the board at the beginning of last year, actually, of 2022. Um, and I worked on the policy committee. Uh, I co-chaired it with uh, Jeff Booth, who used to be on the board. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Like, I love government relations. I love being able to do advocacy work um, on behalf of the business community in general. I do a lot of volunteer work tied to the business community as well. So that's sort of what got me connected with IDEA. And... When the opportunity came, when Mariah went on maternity leave, the previous exec, um, the idea of being able to do this full time was really appealing to me. It was kind of me considering, well, you know, <laughs> I'd actually get paid for the volunteer work that I'm already doing. Um, it really appealed to me and it just seemed like a good fit. So that's how I moved into becoming the executive director uh, in January of this year. I think that's how you met Lila as well, because I believe she was involved on the policy committee when she first joined IDEA as well. And I know we were talking about um, how sort of some of the, the bits of IDEA have evolved over the past year. And I know that you've been working on establishing working groups um, with an IDEA and sort of moving away from the, the committee structure. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's been kind of interesting because the way I sort of perceived it, I thought that it would play out with the committees all the same way, uh, but it hasn't actually, uh, which was a learning experience for me. But overall, like kind of the premise behind a working group is two things. Um, a working group allows the people involved in that working group to do the thing that they're most passionate for. So when you're bringing those people together, they're people that are already fully invested. Um, it also makes it a little easier to get the work done. Uh, working groups tend to have less people. They're more focused and can work on a different cadence. So you're not having to balance the schedules of as many people. For policy, for example, when we had the policy committee, we actually had about 50 people, five zero, <laughs> that were registered for that particular committee. 
And every month it was kind of a, a game of roulette as to who would actually be there on that particular meeting. So the working groups were meant to kind of address that. Um, it's interesting how it translated because for groups like communications um, and groups like events, uh, they translated away from that committee to working group um, structure very, very well because I think the work just broke down um, and could be segmented in an easier way. Um, advocacy has been more of an experiment, I guess I would call it. Uh, we're still sort of trying to find that happy medium. Um, what we've decided is we are bringing back the policy committee, and we actually have already had one meeting um, for that. And that is just going to be for what it has always been, just to give an update to our membership so they know what's going on. Uh, the city of Edmonton did a really interesting structural change recently in the way that it does its industry meetings. They have that update meeting, um, and then they do a working group on top of it that's much more focused. And I think that's the happy medium here, is that we need both in order for our advocacy to function at the greatest rate of efficiency that it can. So we're kind of transitioning into that for 2024. Yeah, that makes sense when you have a lot of volunteers who also work full time and are trying to manage, you know, all the things they need to do for their job and then also their volunteer commitments. It's sometimes uh, it's a bit like herding cats, I think. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Getting volunteers, right, together. So I can see why there's, you know, the working group um, format would work really well for something like events and communications. And then maybe that doesn't translate as well to, to the advocacy piece. So it's always like kind of balancing it out and figuring out what works best. Allison, you know what I think also it is, is when you think of how advocacy work um, sort of plays out, uh, it's very much a reactive environment a lot of the time, as much as you try to be responsive which I think is what working groups try to do to create the space and the time to get the work that needs to be done done. A lot of the time you're having to pivot and you're having to change because the environment is changing. Um, so that's why being in the know about what's going on is so important. And sometimes those larger uh, committee groups can be a good way to get that information out quickly so people know how to react. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Um, you know, and on the topic of advocacy, obviously two things, two major things that have been going on in 2023 was the zoning bylaw renewal and, and the zoning bylaw getting approved in October. And now the next thing, um, you know, that's sort of a major topic in the planning community is district plans. And that's, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because there's been some um, updates recently regarding the district planning process. But before we get into what's going on um, with the status of that project. We just wanted to give the listeners a little bit of a background about what district plans are. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what the, the district plans actually are and what they're intended to do? Sure. So yeah, I guess I would say a few things about them. District planning is about changing the way that Edmonton plans and supports development and growth to move us closer to our vision of a more connected, prosperous, health and climate resilient city of 2 million people. So they're very much an extension of what city plan is. Um, and further to that, they're actually a statutory document, which I think is what people sometimes miss. Uh, the whole purpose of district plans is that they're replacing the ARPs that we currently use for that um, more focused understanding of planning. Um, there's three components to the project. First of all, just creating um, new planning tools 
um, the district policy and the 15 district plans to prepare Edmonton for um, our next big population milestone. Uh, they also have the component of just trying to simplify our land use policies by recommending geographic plans to keep change or retire. And then thirdly, they identify future work priorities. So this is another one that often gets missed. Um, people think of district planning in context to rezoning, like that's um, one of the immediate places they go to, which is definitely like a future oriented outcome. But another thing that they really do is they actually guide things like infrastructure investment and growth management. They indicate where other public bodies and private bodies um, should be thinking about investing their resources as we move and grow as a city. Uh, thanks, Nicholas, for providing us uh, this holistic view of, you know, what district plans really mean and what their adoption implies um, in terms of, you know, our legal framework in the city, given that they are statutory plans. That's uh, really great to hear, especially since, like you said, there there are some people who were unaware that they are statutory so if we rewind back a little bit to the end of 2022, uh, the city made an announcement that they were going to plan to repeal um, over 70 ARPs and ASPs in the city. Um, and that list has recently been added to, uh, more recently since the urban planning committee meeting. Uh, could you elaborate on what happened there? Yeah, sure. I can talk about that a little bit for you. Basically, Back when we were first engaging with the district plans, um, well, with a more fully formed set of district plans, uh, like you had mentioned near the end of 2022, the city had mentioned that they were going to repeal a number of ARPs and ASPs at the same time, uh, which was something that we were very happy about, but we felt that they could go even further. Um, so when we actually engaged with uh, the city and gave our feedback at the beginning of 2023, we suggested that more plans needed to be repealed. Um, and the main reason for this is if the absolute intention of the district plans is to essentially replace uh, this kind of structuring of ARPs and ASPs, then they need to go all out. Or basically, you have two systems that are competing with one another. So it was our recommendation that anything that was basically defunct um, be taken off the board. And any of those elements to current ARPs and ASPs that are still relevant, they just be integrated into the district plans. And that would be a better approach. So everybody has one document that they can focus on as opposed to four or five or six or seven, which is where we were kind of uh, looking towards with certain uh, areas of development in the city. Yeah, I think that makes sense because if you have, you know, a specific policy direction in a district plan and then it doesn't necessarily align with what was in the original ARP or ASP, it creates a lot of confusion about like the, that particular conflict. And it's like, OK, so what is the policy direction then and which one has the hierarchy, right? Yeah. And like exactly to that point is... What it actually said in the previous draft of the district plans was if there's anything in an ARP or an ASP that is contradictory to what we're saying here, take the ARP and the ASP as having priority. And that just builds a lot of distrust in a document 
when they are indicating within that document there may be errors. That's the way it translates to somebody that's reading it. Um, so I think a much better approach is doing that extra bit of work to integrate the policies that the city does see as a priority into the new document that they're using. Yeah, I agree. And when we think about the sort of higher level um, overview of the planning framework in Edmonton, really what district plans are doing is further implementing and creating more detail around the policy direction from city plan. So we want we want those plans to to be up to date and to reflect the overall direction that's coming from city plan. So it makes sense to just let's just figure that out now and get the documents you know in the place where we want them to be to implement to be able to implement city plan. Yeah, and we know when rezonings and stuff are being executed uh, at public hearing, for example, we've been told on a regular basis that it's recognized by council and administration that there's so many things with the ARPs and the ASPs that are no longer relevant, that they're not even considering them in the decisions that they're making. They're immediately going to city plan as that governing document to give them direction. So we shouldn't really be relying on something that at the highest level is already being considered irrelevant. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, there's a lot of um, ARPs in Edmonton that are 20, 25 years old, and they've been amended over time, but it's more spot amendments and they haven't been updated to the current evolution of Edmonton and how the, how it's been redeveloping in the last 10 or 15 years as well, right? So we're now looking at, you know, we have documents that are currently in place right now that are not really reflective of the direction that our city is going. So we needed to have that change. So I guess that kind of leads into what's been happening right now with district planning. I know that um, the plans went to Urban Planning Committee on December 5th. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that meeting? I know that you were there speaking on behalf of IDEA. Yeah, yeah. It has been a pretty involved uh, month concerning the district plans. Um, leading up to the end of engagement, IDEA had identified three things that were still of a major concern for the organization. Uh, it was mainly the planning sector that had brought these concerns up as well. Where they come down to is map readability. Uh, so that was a bit of a concern with the district plans. Uh, the way the district plans are set up right now, we basically have JPEGs that are then translated to PDF form. So they're not scalable in any way. If you try to zoom in them, uh, the language becomes distorted. Uh, so we were advocating for the maps to be translated into some sort of scalable vector graphic and also to label the roadways so you would have a bit more of a point of reference. Uh, the other big point was tied to policy direction. So there's a bit of a policy gap uh, in the district plans in the way that the policy for urban mix is outlined. So you have very, very clear direction for policy uh, when it comes to development um, on nodes and corridors. But uh, you don't have clear direction for mid-rise development outside of nodes and corridors. And this was a bit of a concern because we've seen in the past uh, couple of years even further, that there has been a lot of uh, council support for development outside the nodes and corridors at this level of intensity. So we felt that there should be policy direction to um, support that. So we recommended to council that uh, parts of the urban mix policy be amended to name mid-rise development specifically, because it's something that actually isn't even named. 
basically when we were advocating on this point, uh, it wasn't about creating new policy or asking administration to come up with ideas of where they think that kind of development would be suitable, but instead look look back at past rezonings and see where council has already supported it. Uh, There's a number of rezonings that have happened in various areas of the city in mature neighborhoods where multiple um, RA7 rezonings and RA8 rezonings have been approved already. And that's a really good indication that that's a context-appropriate area for mid-rise development. Um, In line with that, our third advocacy piece was to have a visual representation of mid-rise development. Um, One of the problems that uh, you see with the current draft of the district plans is the hard line boundaries around the nodes and corridors. They create this sort of false dichotomy that puts high intensity development against uh, low intensity development. Um, And actually, I think that sort of feeds the the narrative of us versus them that we sometimes see playing out between industry and residents. Um, There's this impression given that the city supports high intensity development along nodes and corridors, but don't worry, you're not going to see it in your neighborhoods but that's not really the truth. Um, So we think that there would be, everybody would be in a much better position. There'd be more trust engendered if we just showed on the maps how development is actually going to happen. And part of that kind of future growth development is to show transitional areas where higher intensity feeds into lower intensity. So that mid intensity space outside the nodes and corridors. And the way that you can visually represent that is actually remove those hard line boundaries and instead replace them with a gradient because a gradient can be a really good visual representation of how one area transitions into another. Um, those are those are really good uh, points, Nicholas, that, that idea has put forward in terms of various ways that these district plans can be improved. You know, those hard lines may in the future create issues of um, having to amend the plans later if the, the nodes and the corridor lines aren't flexible enough, aren't gradients. And on another note, it, it would definitely make the work of the industry members a lot easier if some sort of an interactive uh, web app that ha- had reference to all the information that was required, rather than having to open up various uh, PDFs or JPEGs or what have you and slow down the work. Um, I certainly, certainly enjoy using City of Edmonton Slim Maps a lot. Um, I am very grateful for the city having it, especially when I work in other jurisdictions uh, which rely on PDF maps. The uh, administration is making that a goal. Uh, They have identified that as a priority. It's just supposed to be something that's coming later in implementation. Um, We'd like to see it earlier just because it would make us, it make it would show the utility of the maps a lot more than what we're able to see now. Uh, But it has been, communicated to us that that's definitely something already on the books. Is being able to properly read and interpret a map and, you know, how it translates to the the policy direction that's in the district plans and the general policy is really important. You know, and I've looked at some of the maps and I know city of Edmonton pretty well. Um, and I'm looking at a particular area and I'm looking, there's no road labels. I don't even know where this is. Like it's really hard to then connect that to the actual location. So that's, I'm glad to hear that that's something that they're going to be improving going forward. So my question uh, to you, Nicholas, is when will we be able to see if these changes um, or the recommendations for these changes are making their way into the district plans? 
Yeah, for sure. So on December 5th, we actually went to another urban planning committee meeting. This was an opportunity again for council to receive for information the work that had been done on the district plans. Uh, They received that information. There were 30 speakers from the public that came and uh, discussed their position on district plans, uh, including IDEA, where I spoke about these three points. Um, Following deliberations, um, a motion was put forth to make some changes to the district plans. Of the specific points that we had brought up, uh, one of them was addressed in the motion. Um, They are going to be removing the hard boundaries along nodes and corridors. What isn't exactly clear yet, and uh, we're trying to get clarification, as to whether that immediately means that they're going to be replaced by a gradient or if just the lines are going to be removed. It seems like right now what they're planning on doing is just removing the lines and not necessarily replacing them with a gradient. As for the mid-development or mid-rise development policy direction, that wasn't something that was brought up in terms of further direction provided by uh, council to administration. So when it does come up again, we definitely are going to be advocating for that piece. Um, schedule was something that was very important to council. So the direction that came out of this meeting is basically council could have two options. They could send it back to urban planning committee again and direct that there would either be more public engagement or what's called advised level engagement, where they don't do official public engagement, but administration can still receive feedback from industry residents or public stakeholders. So they could have gone that way or they could go straight to public hearing which was the original schedule intended for the district plans in spring of 2024. Uh, Sticking to that schedule was very important to council. So they decided that they would give specific direction on where they wanted improvements and have admin go ahead with it for presenting the final draft of the district plans in spring of 2024. So that's where we're going at a public hearing specifically. Uh, thanks for that, Nicholas. It's to give us an overview of the the district planning process and where it's going um, in 2024. So sort of leading on to that, we wanted to chat a little bit about what IDEA, all the other things that IDEA has been doing in 2023. Um, there's been a ton of great things that have happened in the past year. Um, do you want to give us an overview of some of the big wins for IDEA? I guess one of the unique things that I can talk about for 2023 uh, was that we celebrated our 10-year anniversary for IDEA. So IDEA started in 2013 as a small advocacy group, mostly focused on small-scale residential development and removing barriers tied to um, builders and developers that were doing that in an infill context to what we have today, which is a program with robust advocacy robust educational programming, and a lot of work in bringing different specialists within infill development together. Um, So we decided that we would celebrate it with style in 2023 and do a big gala in June at the Royal Glenora Club. And it was a very successful event, uh, successful in a lot of ways. Uh, But there were a lot of like value pieces that were just tied to the quality of the organization and how far we've come. Uh, There was a great video put together by Adam Hutlett um, of testimonials that we took from various members of IDEA, new and old, uh, going all the way back to the founding 50, uh, where they talked about what was important to them in terms of IDEA and sort of their own personal journeys. So in addition to the, uh, the video that Adam Hutlett put together during the marketing of the gala, we also put together a 
video version of In Development as a podcast episode. So we hosted it on YouTube, um, and it was an interview between uh, Ryan and Olivia, the past hosts, with Mariah, our previous exec, Chelsea Jerzak, our past president, and Tegan Martin-Drysdell, who was one of the members of the Founding founding 50. So it was really cool to hold it uh, at one of Tegan's properties and just uh, get to hear stories right from the beginning of how Idea came to be and how it's grown. Yeah, the idea of a YouTube podcast makes me very nervous. (laughs) I like the fact that only our audio is recorded for in development. I'm not sure that uh, Lilith and I are quite there yet. (laughs) Yeah, it made us a little nervous. Uh, I think the one thing that really helped is we had a lot of baked cookies that came from a local bakery. And we all just used that to kind of like get the sugar high and build ourselves up for it. Because I think everybody was a little nervous, uh, both from us who were kind of both Megan and I who are trying to like carry out the episode planning and then the actual people that were on. Well, when you think about it, it's a whole other dimension of uh, now you also have to think about your body language um, and the way you look on video. Um, this isn't just, you know, audio and notes on it. So you, you have to become even more um, multi-talented in a sense. So uh, I'm I'm glad you were able to you know uh, pull it off. It, it was an interview full of uh, lots of talented people, so um, definitely not a doubt that they wouldn't have been able to do a good job. Yeah, yeah, no, and it was very helpful to have an expert like Adam helping us as well. So not only did Adam Hutlett do the testimonials, but he also recorded the YouTube podcast. And yeah, like really, uh, shout out to him, uh, great videographer for corporate events for any sort of programming that a for-profit or not-for-profit is trying to do. Uh, Adam Hutlett is great for that kind of work. Another thing that you've been involved with, and to your credit, I would like to say thank you, you've also helped start, is the uh, Beat Infill event series that you and I have been very closely involved in uh, together, um, along with the help of uh, Gazal Lotfi, uh, another idea member. So uh, I'd love to hear it from your perspective, um, you know, the, the story of the origins and where we're at now. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I, I can't in any way take credit for coming up with this event series, that was very much you, Lilith, and uh, Gazal that uh, developed that. But I was so excited to have you share the the idea for this particular series, because it is something that's so important to me. Um, I'm often told that educational programming can be kind of boring and it's not really what individuals are looking for. Um, But I think so many things can come out of us becoming more informed and really part of that part part of being informed is not just learning about your industry, but a lot of self reflection and introspection on how we can be better professionals within our industry. And I really feel that Be and Phil is about that. Um, so some special takeaways, I guess, that um, I would highlight tied to Be and Phil. Uh, we did two events this year. We did one at the beginning of the year um, focused on women in info. Um, it highlighted the personal journeys of two individuals within the industry Uh, both highly successful women, Katie Warwa from our board from Urbis, um, as well as Olivia Fung from uh, Noor, an architect. And yeah, they they spent a little bit of time. It was like your normal panel where they were just some, asked some questions about their 
um, their professional career and how they uh, got into what they do. Uh, but it also just became this sort of sharing circle where they had shared, obviously, a lot of personal reflection. And then when we got into the Q&A, the audience just like warmed to it entirely and just started sharing their own personal stories. And it was beyond like, like in no way am I trying to be reductive this way. Like some of the highlights that you might, that you think might come up in a episode like this would be discussing, for example, misogyny that might still exist within the industry, um, which was something that definitely came up um, as we were discussing their experiences. But we also talked about a lot of things that I personally, as a man and maybe with my own privilege, never thought about because I haven't had to think about um, things like pregnancy in the workplace and uh, the impacts of maternity leave. So we know that people can go on maternity leave, but what sort of impact does that have on their professional career? Does it delay them in any sort of way? Does it make their office environment see them differently? And I found that very insightful and it gave me a new appreciation for what women have to go through in the workplace. Uh, yes, the the first event uh, focusing on women in infill that the speakers really transcended their their thoughts and ideas to the audience. And I actually couldn't believe how open-minded and how open the audience members were to share personal stories back with everyone else. And most people in the room, they haven't even met. And, you know, women came uh, to the, the, the event was hosted in a show house. Uh, and uh, Jill Lange helped us uh, set that up. Uh, so thanks to her for that. Um, some women came to to the show house to the event and they had their kids they're just playing upstairs and it, it really showed through action and both through a conversation um, the point that we were trying to drive across there and I actually had the same experience as you did Nicholas during the second event uh, Pride in Infill uh, where I got to hear stories of people from the LGBTQIA plus community stories that I never even thought of. I never even would have uh, thought these were concerns that some people in the city were having. Um, so uh, you were moderating that discussion at a different venue this time around. What was your summary of that? It was a really fantastic experience being able to moderate that. Uh, we had some great speakers that uh, were able to talk about their experiences as members of the queer community, but in a very industry specific way. Um, I've been to a lot of like business oriented educational events that do look at the queer perspective tied to business in general. But what I really liked about it is we had a lot of elements that really tied it specifically to uh, infill development still. But mostly, like, I think what I appreciated about it was that it wasn't really like intended to be an event where we convinced anybody of a specific agenda. Like everybody there was pretty much supportive of the queer community already. So it wasn't really an event that was for bringing people to our side, so to speak. And the Women in Infill event was very much the same way. We, It's not the prerogative or the responsibility of members of a minority or a marginalized group to educate people outside that group. But what we can do for one another is we can create safe spaces where we can maximize our engagement and our experience by creating a safe environment where people can engage and connect. And Pride and Infill did a really good job at that as well. 
um, I was able to engage with a lot of people in the community that I didn't know um, and engage in a very authentic way where we didn't have to put up the pretenses that we normally put up. As a gay man myself, I, I've had interesting experiences depending on the jobs that I've done when I've been operating more in that nonprofit space and that consulting space. Um, I can be a bit of a chameleon in an office environment. Uh, but when you're working on a construction site as a gay man, that's a little more difficult. I've had a mixed experience. I've had really good experiences with trades and builders. Um, so definitely don't want to paint anybody with the same brush. Uh, but I've also had negative experiences where I've had to adjust and tailor myself in the way that I present as an individual because of the environment that I'm working in. And really all of our panelists um, were able to share similar experiences that they've had in those contexts, uh, but very different based on who they were as individuals. Um, and one of the other aspects of the presentation that I really liked was Jason Savixay. He really got into uh, the importance of equity and planning and how as planners, um, one of the responsibilities in placemaking is creating um, a space that is equitable for all and that is sensitive to the experiences of um, those who occupy that space. Um, so we had some interesting discussions about queer spaces and planning in an Edmonton context. I really love that. I think it's so important to be able to share stories and hear stories from from people from a variety of backgrounds, right? And the more we understand about the people who live in the cities and their diverse backgrounds, the more informed we are as planners. And I, you know, I what you were summarizing from what Jason had said um, about how that impacts placemaking and, and how we think about those spaces and who's occupying them, that's so important and something that we should always be thinking about um, in the back of our minds when we're involved in the planning process. Um, I know one of the other events that we had this year was the infill tour, which I believe was in the spring. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the infill tour is nothing new to IDEA. Uh, it was something that they used to do in the past, in the pre-COVID days. Uh, but when COVID happened, obviously, it was one of the uh, in-person events that obviously had to take a bit of a hiatus. But we were really excited to bring it back in full force in 2023. Uh, so we were able to host um, seven different projects in Edmonton that represented infill in seven very different ways. So we had residential projects, we had a net zero project, we had micro suites, uh, we had a bunch of different commercial projects as well. Anybody who attended got to go around in a bus, visit each of these projects, and then we ended with a networking event at the Pendennis building, which is on Jasper Avenue downtown. A really cool building. I actually just went to the Pendennis building recently um, for the Banksy exhibit that was there about a month ago. And that was my first time visiting that space. And it's really cool. Um, it's like such an interesting space. And I'm definitely excited to go to more events there in the future and see how they continue to program that space. I was just going to say, yeah, engineers, they just love that space. Like every time I bring an engineer into that space, they just sit in the middle of the floor and they just stare at the walls because I think they're just completely fascinated about how that building comes together and is structurally sound. <laughs> so, But it is, I promise. I didn't sit in the middle of the floor, but I did look around. <laughs> 
Um, Allison, I was also uh, at the Banksyland uh, exhibition there, the Pandemis building, but I went there during the evening. The sun has already set and um, everything was dark, so I didn't really get to see the building in the daylight and just bask in the glory of, you know, modern industrial and how all of that feels. But um, it was certainly um, a, a wonderful open space sort of wrapping up 2023, Nicholas, the other major event that IDEA hosted was the Infill Connect, uh, which was held in October. And we, Lilith and I, were fortunate enough to to moderate uh, one of the panels at that event, which was a great time. We had a really good group of panelists and had some really interesting discussions. Um, just wanted to hear a little bit more about what how you think that event went and um, some of the wins from from Infill Connect from your perspective. Yeah, originally, it's it's kind of a good segue from our talk about Infill Tour, because originally we were going to hold Infill Connect in the Pendennis building, but unfortunately lost the space at the last minute um, and ended up having to go with a different venue. But at the time, Hanny from Hipco Construction, uh, he offered his offices to host the event instead, and we ended up getting them for free. So we really appreciate that he was able to do that for us. And in the end, I think it made for such an interesting space to hold an educational conference. I love the juxtaposition of a uh, industrial sort of space, a warehouse specifically, juxtaposed against an educational symposium. A, I love those contradictions. Do you think they'll invite us over for a game of basketball? I really want <laughs> that to happen. Yeah, between their basketball hoops and they had a gym that was uh, a retrofitted sea container. It was a very cool space. And they also have a resident dog that is there every day. So any business that has, uh, has a dog that you can pet and visit is definitely a, a highlight of my event programming experience. Uh, but yeah, overall, uh, Infill Connect, I take a lot of pride in that event, but it didn't just come from me for sure. Kudos to Mariah, first of all, for creating the vision for this event last year uh, when we were able to host it. Uh, everybody really responded well and engaged with the topics um, that were presented last year. And we really tried to just build from that. So we had four topics, one built around financing, one more development focused, one based on infrastructure, um, and another one based on integrated design this year. And then, of course, you folks hosted the keynote panel, which was great uh, being able to bring together conversations with developers and other members of industry from other municipalities, from Winnipeg, Calgary, BC, and then with Chelsea here in uh, Edmonton. So yeah, I received a lot of positive feedback about InfoConnect. There were a lot of like special moments that were created out of InfoConnect as well with some of the feedback surveys that I'd circulated to members. Uh, it seemed like the coffee bar was a big hit. Um, it's funny how that can really like put people in the right mind, mind frame to learn um, when you have good coffee to start the day with. People really like the food in general. Uh, we had an after party following the event um, for volunteers and other people involved. The panels themselves were very engaging and really informed some of the educational programming we're going to be doing for 2024. And in general, we're just planning on going bigger next year, um, which I, 
I'm happy to share a little bit uh, about uh, later on in this conversation if you'd like me to. But overall, I cannot say how happy and inspired um, I was from InfoConnect 2023. Oh, and one other thing I have to add, hats off to the communications volunteers that were tied to that particular event. We had three graphic designers that worked on the program for the event. The program was over 30 pages, and it was inspiring just to look at the way they were able to highlight members of industry in such a professional way. Um, our sponsors were appreciative of, of their exposure and the opportunity to promote their business. Uh, it really set up the trade show element of InfoConnect really well as well, uh, which was something entirely new for the uh, event this year. Um, so yeah, it really pulled everything together. Yeah, it was a great event. I'm really excited to see um, how that evolves going forward. It's such a great opportunity to bring people together and share knowledge about the infill industry. I also wanted to add um, a little tidbit of my highlights from the event. And I know that Allison and I have talked about our highlights of the Infill Connect Symposium in the previous episodes, but uh, I, I just remember you, you mentioned the keynote just now, uh, Nicholas. I remember I, I woke up that morning with like the, like I, I pulled something in my neck. This is an anecdote, by the way. I, I pulled something in my neck and the only position in my neck that it didn't hurt is ever is when I was looking in a certain direction. So you wouldn't believe how relieved I was when we, Allison and I got to the event and the seating uh, for the uh, for the moderators was in the perfect position for me to keep my neck that way the entire time. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that that happened that way, but it was definitely uh, great outside of all of that to to talk to these people from different provinces, different cities, and and see how things are going on their end. Uh, also to see how Edmonton's planning framework and advocacy has influenced them in their work that they do. I think Edmonton doesn't always realize how we're true leaders in policymaking and how so many municipalities have looked to us for direction when it comes to uh, development policy and uh, planning policies in general. So it was really nice to be able to not only bring together the expertise from those other cities, but really like showcase Edmonton as a leader in the work that we're doing. And I think idea itself as a leader, you know, the strength of the the organization that's developed over the last 10 years is not something that's present in every city, right? I think IDEA really is a good example for how cities can establish an infill advocacy group um, and the strength that it can have in guiding how the infill um, process evolves in a city, right? And sort of related to that, I know that one of um, ideas initiatives for 2023 was three in 2023. So <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that, just to wrap up our conversation on I, I, on idea for for this past year. Yeah, for sure. So three in 2023. Uh, it was kind of an interesting initiative. Like the one thing I really liked about it is it gave us a shared goal as an organization that we could work towards. Um, and it did create a lot of excitement um, and energy within the board itself uh, to work towards that goal. So the premise of three in 2023 was that by the end of 2023, IDEA would be in a uh, stable enough of a financial position to hire two additional staff people so that we would have three staff 
So at the beginning of January to Megan Tan, she was hired as our marketing and events coordinator. And the goal was that by the end of uh, December, so right now, we'd be in a position to hire a policy coordinator as well. Uh, it didn't play out that way, but that doesn't mean that we didn't have a lot of successes in the year. So, but we feel that uh, maybe like the one thing about three in 2023 that uh, we set ourselves up for is that we did kind of create a lot of hype that we could hire that third person by the end of the year. But it's more important to ensure that we're in a financial position that we can do that without risk. So I still see it as a win that we were able to have the one person grow all of our events for the year and position ourselves well to hopefully hire a third person in 2025 is more the goal that we're working towards right now. So you'll see a lot of growth in 2024, which I'm happy to share, uh, but we're feeling that that's probably the better direction. Uh, we have changed kind of the way in which IDEA as an organization has structured its staff this year. Uh, so in addition to an executive director, uh, we ended up losing Megan in June. She ended up working for the city of Edmonton, which was a fantastic opportunity for her. But it also gave us an opportunity um, as an association to pivot a little bit and recognize how we wanted to grow after or six months of trying to grow. Um, we realized the importance of an administrator. So we started doing work towards hiring um, an administrative assistant part-time. Uh, which has been fantastic in allowing us to sort of focus the organization's day-to-day -day goals and operations. So Alex has been very helpful towards that end. Um, and then we ended up contracting out our marketing work to uh, Krista from Departure House. Uh, they're, a new uh, they're a niche boutique marketing firm um, that has lots of experience in real estate development. Her connection to idea has been a long-standing one um, that is nothing new to us uh, she really understands our brand and has taken over our social media management responsibilities so she's been a great asset to us that way so in a way we have three in 2023 between myself krista and alex it just played out a little differently than we anticipated but it's put us in a good position for 2024 and for getting that policy person hopefully in 2025 um, Nicholas, overall, it, it sounds like you've got a lot of bragging rights for what you've achieved in 2023. So congrats to you and the board and the organization overall. It's good to see that idea is growing uh, in influence and in membership as well. You've mentioned before with that projected growth. I also wanted to see what your outlook for 2024 was. Um, and I wanted to start this conversation by talking about the uh, diversity that is in the current board of directors um, and what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I can't give enough credit to our board in realizing the vision that was 2023. Um, at our AGM in May, uh, we brought on a number of new board members um, from diverse backgrounds uh, in a number of different ways that have really allowed us to shape and change the direction of some of the events that we're doing, some of the initiatives that we're taking interest in, and even like some of the advocacy positions and, um, and general vision for IDEA. Um, so there's a lot of diversity within our board um, in terms of background, um, professional background, for example. Uh, something that was very important to me as an executive director 
was making sure that our board represented the professional demographic that we wanted to be part of our membership base. So a goal that came out of 3 in 2023 was that we were trying to attract more um, professional tier members. And one way we decided to do this was by showing the value of IDEA to members of the realtor community, uh, as well as mortgage brokers and investors. Because we had a few people that had just organically joined the organization that were represented by those roles, and they really liked what IDEA was doing. So we thought, you know, if we make a bit more of a concerted effort towards this, uh, this is something we can really lean into and add to the synergy that is idea. Um, But I felt that the first thing that we needed to really do in order to make that happen is have that kind of representation shown in our board, because that inspires confidence for uh, members of that community that are interested or thinking about joining idea. So uh, Mo Yassin, um, Manny Fuller, they're both realtors and new to the board and have offered a great amount of perspective, not just on events, but um, on some of the advocacy work that we're doing and some of the educational programming that we're doing. Uh, we have a new VP, Zimran Mali. Uh, she represents both the developer community, but also the uh, supplier community, which was something we were trying to bring more into IDEA as well. And then we have Julie Hussein, uh, who joined our board. Uh, She fits the bill of kind of that community perspective, uh, but also the investor perspective, because she's very interested in doing some small-scale residential projects in Edmonton and is already doing that in Edmonton and other cities. Uh, So very diverse board that way. Uh, Ethnically, our our board is very diverse. In terms of gender, we have quite a diverse board. In terms of sexual orientation, we have a very diverse board. And all of this really like plays into having a a strong mix and variability in terms of values, philosophy, mission that has really like enriched the organization as a whole. It's hard sometimes. You know, it's difficult sometimes coming to a consensus on things where as a nonprofit, as a industry stakeholder, we need to come to a consensus. Uh, But the conversations have been really valuable. Nicholas, I remember distinctly when we were recording our first podcast episode, you said to me how it's really good to speak with people who have different values and opinions than you because they help you challenge your values and challenge your opinions and vice versa, where you can um, either understand the other side or stand stronger upon the values that you hold. So I I think you're right. This this does strengthen the board, um, just having this diversity of mindsets to work with. And then uh, outside of the board for the 2024 outlook, um, I know that the board's been working on updating the infill certification program. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So there's a number of changes um, that are happening with infill certification program or ICP, as we're uh, sometimes referring to it as. Um, You would have recently read about um, the changes that were happening at the city level tied to the infill certification program and the expedited permitting pilot. Um, So with the change into the new zoning bylaw, the city has decided to not continue with that particular component of the infill certification program. So that means the developers no longer get that 20 days guarantee um, of having their permit approved and or reviewed and approved, providing there's no deficiencies. 
But uh, despite that, um, once we kind of go through the transitionary period of development officers familiarizing themselves with the new zoning bylaw, there are going to be a lot of automated processes that go into permit review and approval that should speed up the time a lot anyways, and more consistently development officers should be able to meet that 20-day requirement. So it was less about it was less about not willing to commit to the 20 days and more about just seeing that those 20 days will probably happen regardless. While we definitely saw in its early beginnings that the expedited permit pilot was an incentive to take the infill certification program, since 2019, we've seen a lot of members of the industry take it for a number of different reasons, not just to get permits approved faster. Many of them are from different uh, areas of industry, such as realtors, suppliers, planners, engineers, that have taken the course because they just want to be more informed. They see the educational value in the course. Uh, So we're really leaning in on that. Um, We're hoping that the city of Edmonton is still going to support us on updating the curriculum so that it aligns with the new zoning bylaw. Because every module in the base course talks about zoning in one way or another. So it's very important that we have up-to-date information. And I really think that that information needs to come from the city of Edmonton. One of the things I often hear when I go to city council to speak on various initiatives is council signaling that the responsibility of industry stakeholders, such as IDEA, UDI, and CHBA, is to hold industry accountable and educate them on creating quality real estate development. And I definitely agree with that. Um, But when it comes to certain things like zoning, for example, or permits, the best way that we can educate industry is having that support from City of Edmonton, having that support from EPCOR, having support from the public stakeholders that set the policy. So it's definitely been signaled to me that that relationship is important and that City of Edmonton wants to continue to nurture that relationship. So even though we don't have the expedited permit pilot anymore, we're still going to get the support in developing curriculum. In addition to that, we have a lot of new curriculum coming out. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of add that I think maintaining a collaborative relationship on the education piece is really important, right? It's part of, it also helps to like maintain relationships with the city of Edmonton as well. Um, and so you were just going to talk a little bit more about how the curriculum is changing for 2024. So let's hear what the plan is. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be offering a lot of new curriculum in 2024. So in addition to updating the base curriculum, which is those five modules that have been tied to Infill Certification Program from the beginning, so that's design, that's development permits, building code and energy code, construction practices, and community public engagement, uh, we're starting to hear from members of industry on other things they'd like to learn about. So each quarter of 2024, we're going to be releasing additional electives under the umbrella of the Infill Certification Program tied to different topics. So in the first quarter of 2024, our focus is going to be on infrastructure, um, both on the electrical side and on the uh, water upgrade side. Uh, So you're going to hear more information about that as it comes about. It won't happen right in January, but it's going to be coming probably mid-February. You can expect to see that. 
Uh, moving into the second quarter of the year, uh, we're going to be offering some um, curriculum tied to financing. So one of the most interesting things at InfoConnect 2023 was how popular the financing panel was. <laughs> Everybody wonders how a financing panel is going to turn out because it's a lot of discussion about numbers and uh, it can kind of go over people's heads sometimes. But it was, it was really interesting. It showed like the different demographic of people that attended InfoConnect this year because there were so many questions about financing when that panel happened. A lot of people with the new zoning bylaw, they're very interested in use of the MLI Select program from CMHC as part of a financing option for row housing development. Um, so having heard that, um, I definitely want to be able to provide those resources through IDEA. And we have a lot of uh, members uh, that are part of that world that can provide their expertise and are very eager to provide their expertise. So I'm working with them to develop curriculum for that right now. And then uh, quarter three and quarter four, hoping to move into other directions, maybe tied to building out design, building out um, other resources for developers. Not quite sure what that'll look like, but uh, definitely on course to continue finding out what our members are looking for. Yeah, that's really exciting. I took the infill or the certification program about a year and a half ago, and it was really valuable just to get some, just that baseline information um, about the development process in Edmonton and, and learn a little bit more about that side of things. So I'm excited to see what the new the new topics are going to be um, coming in 2024. Sort of related to that, I know that you, in 2023, it pivoted to be a virtual course. Is that still the plan for 2024 or are there going to be any in-person opportunities for the course? Yeah, I can, I can definitely elaborate on that. Uh, the structure of the course is something that's really special to what we offer. Not only can you do it virtually, uh, but with us introducing new electives, um, there's the ability to take individual modules or module course packages. So, for example, infrastructure will probably have three particular modules that are tied to it. If you're coming in new, you can take all three. If you have a bit more experience, you could just take one, depending on what you're looking for. What we're hoping to do in 2024 is continue to keep everything by default on a virtual platform but also look for opportunities to offer the course in person. Uh, this comes with a couple of benefits. If every so often you can schedule in the year to offer the base course or the electives uh, in person, it allows for a more team-oriented environment. So people that learn well by being around others and collaborating with others really benefit from that kind of educational experience as opposed to the virtual experience, which is valuable in that you can complete it in your own time, but is less valuable in that it's very isolating, you're working on it yourself, uh, they, they'd appreciate the option. One of the other benefits that you get from taking the course in person uh, is a financial benefit. So registrants have the opportunity um, to access federal grants for educational purposes that can reduce the cost of their tuition. Essentially, the government will subsidize a portion of the tuition costs. So IDEA doesn't lose any money, but it's cheaper for the registrant when they take the course, which is a win for both. And 
in terms of topic, it can be on anything. Like the grants don't really care about that. But the one thing that they do care about is that the course has to include live instruction. So that's why it needs to be in person as opposed to the recorded videos that we use for the virtual. There's a lot of benefits to to the in-person learning option. When I took the course, there was about 15 to 20 other students. And I got to hear some of their experiences and stories um, from the infill, what they've experienced in the infill development process. And that was really valuable to hear that. So another benefit to that in-person activity is, is just meeting other people that are involved in the in the infill industry. Um, sort of getting into back into 2024 with the education piece, with the new curriculum, we also have a packed events calendar for 2024. Do you want to talk a little bit about what ideas planning um, for events? Oh, yeah. No, there are a ton of events for 2024. Um, So as usual, we have our in-person events uh, on average about once a month. So in total, I think we have about 12 or 13 events um, in that context. Uh, But beyond that, we're doing um, a number of members-only events in the form of our Idea Fest, which I'm really happy to have had come back. And then in addition to that, we're doing a series of webinars So for sure, there's going to be seven lunchtime webinars, and then we're probably going to build from that throughout the year as well, but I've got seven scheduled in thus far. Um, They're going to be focused on a lot of different activities. So some are adjacent to the Infill Certification Program. So we have a financing workshop that's going to be members only, that's going to be released starting in uh, late January, and it's going to be made available on a regular basis every two months. Um, where members can come in and they can actually workshop projects that they're doing from a financing perspective. So more details to come on that. The rest of quarter one is really going to be highly focused on zoning bylaw implementation. Um, I always laugh. People have come to me and have been like, oh, you must be so glad that zoning bylaw is over. And then I laugh and say, well, actually, it's just beginning. Uh, There's so much educational programming um, required in respect to zoning bylaw implementation and how that's going to play out for 2024 and well into 2025, if I'm being completely honest. Um, And a lot of our events are going to be the ways in which we can provide that information to industry. So IdeaFest is one of the first opportunities we'll have tied to that. Have either of you heard of IdeaFest before? I heard you mentioning it before, but I don't know holistically, you know, what IdeaFest means. Uh, What about you, Allison? Same. I'm not familiar with what it is. I've never been to one of the ones that happened in the past. So full honesty, uh, I had never participated in IdeaFest, but I knew about it because I was on the board. Uh, Again, one of those pre-COVID things. Um, The board used to um, periodically meet in person uh, for their board meetings. And what they would do is uh, every quarter, usually, or every couple of months, um, in addition to meeting in person, they would invite all of the dedicated volunteers on committees um, to come and they would do kind of workshopping and uh, committee presentations to let everybody else know what they were working on. And it was a great way to bring members of the community, the infill community together, um, and also just sort of signal who's who are the plugged in members of IDEA as well, like who who really wants to get more involved and is looking for opportunities to volunteer, and they just don't know where they fit. 
So that's really what IdeaFest is all about. Um, our first event is going to be in January. We actually have the venue already picked. It's going to be at the new um, show space for Trail Appliances Limited. Uh, they're a recent member of IDEA. Uh, they have this great space that actually works really well for hosting events. So they've offered in-kind sponsorship to host that event. Um, we're going to have our mini board meeting, just the board themselves. And then we're inviting anybody who is interested in volunteering opportunities to come and uh, participate at IdeaFest. So each of the committees or working groups will do a brief presentation on the work that they're doing right now. And then there'll be a call for volunteer interest from anybody within membership that wants to be a part of this work. In addition to the presentations, the City of Edmonton is actually coming as a guest. The zoning bylaw team is going to do a brief presentation on zoning bylaw implementation. We're going to collect some questions ahead of time that they're going to be answering. They're going to give a small presentation, and it's going to feed into some of the programming that the city is helping us with later in February and in March. Um, Nicholas, I have a question for you. Uh, for the all, all the events you have planned in uh, Q1, you mentioned, you know, Idea Fest. Uh, you mentioned webinars as well as in-person luncheons. Um, I'm, I'm just curious to know um, to all of our listeners who might not be involved in the infill industry on a regular basis, would you say there's a benefit to them attending or tuning into these events as well, just to learn about what's happening in the infill industry? Oh, absolutely. Like this is the way to be connected, in my opinion. Like we have a fantastic newsletter that is pretty comprehensive about what IDEA is doing and kind of the advocacy work that we're doing. But it's so much more beyond the advocacy work. Like when I when I'm first asked, well, what does IDEA do? What role does IDEA play in industry? I would say first and foremost, first and foremost, we're facilitators of connections. Uh, we connect experts to experts. Um, and that's really how we do all the work that we do. So the best way that you can really like get the most out of your membership is by participating in events and coming to the events, because you'll get to learn directly from the experts rather than getting the summaries of what happened. Everything that is dynamic and important that's going on in industry um, is happening in the space of events and in the space of physical engagement. So, uh, yeah, no, I'd really encourage people to come to these events. Um, the luncheon series is something very new that IDEA is doing. Uh, it's not new to industry, like uh, UDI has done uh, luncheon events, CHBA has their lunch and learn events. Uh, very similar, but with kind of the idea spin on it, uh, a little more grassroots, more conversational. Think of it like a mini panel that you'd see at InfoConnect or at the symposium. Um, but these particular luncheon events are very um, city focused. Um, so we've got one that's going to be by Travis Pollack, tied specifically to zoning bylaw. He's the acting branch manager for development services. Uh, the next one is going to be uh, hosting EPCOR. Um, and then I'm hoping that third and fourth might involve city council. Not 100% sure on that. And then uh, getting the BIAs, the business improvement areas, involved as part of a luncheon event as well. So working towards that. Yeah. And in addition to the luncheons, like a lot of the series that we've already done in 2023 are things that we're going to replicate again in 2024. So we're doing two infill tours as opposed to one. So we've got one in the spring, one in the fall. Uh, excited to be able to show even more infill projects and the diversity between them. 
Uh, B infill is definitely continuing with three more events planned for this year. Um, in addition to that, we're doing our first ever golf tournament. Uh, don't ask me about that too much. Uh, this is definitely the brainchild of a couple people on our board, but they're very excited to implement it. And I definitely cannot deny the uh, positive outcomes and uh, the success that can come out of doing a golf tournament. So I'm excited to be involved in my own way. Um, and then, of course, InfoConnect is coming back. If you can believe it, we've already started negotiating the venue space for InfoConnect and had some planning meetings tied to what the event is going to look like. Um, it is our hope. It's not 100%, but it's like 95%. Uh, it's going to be a two-day conference next year. So that is really exciting. Um, and the venue, where, the venue we are looking at right now is the Matrix Hotel. So this is where we did the after party in 2023. We're planning on doing the whole conference there for 2024. So more details to come. That's really exciting. You're able to expand that to two days. I There's so many more opportunities for to learn about the infill community. I'm really excited for that. And I'm personally excited for the golf tournament because I am a golfer. So <laughs> I'm very excited that we're having a golf tournament next year. Allison, can I drive your golf cart and just like read a book while you're taking your shots? Uh, I'd really enjoy that. Yes, you can be my caddy. I'd be happy to have you. Yeah, I was going to say the only shots that I'm good at is the two licensed holes that we'll have that will have alcohol. I'll be I'll be good at those shots. <laughs> oh, this is this is great. I, I feel like ideas should just send us all placeholders for all the wonderful events you have planned uh, because as per the last idea newsletter I think you have all of the events like the dates already decided going far like well into 2024 um, just to let the members know uh, you know save the date right yeah yeah actually they're all on the website uh, we recently posted them on the website um, so you can definitely check out events on the uh, idea event page um, and find out when all the events are happening for 2024. Certainly, we're going to add some virtual events throughout the year, uh, but that'll give you a basic understanding in your calendar of what to plan for. Awesome. Well, this has been a really great conversation, Nicholas, where it's really exciting to have you on the podcast for the first time, and I'm sure we'll have you back again in the future um, just to update everyone on, on idea and what's going to be happening um, next year. So thanks so much for your time today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great experience. Thanks, Nicholas. Have a great weekend. All right, Allison. So we had a pretty great conversation with Nicholas about uh, all things IDEA 2023 wrapped and what to expect uh, in the new year. Yeah, we've got lots of exciting things happening in 2024. IDEA has an action-packed event schedule um, and some new types of events as well. So looking forward um, to share that with the members of IDEA. And for the listeners of the podcast, we've also got some great episodes planned for next year that we're excited to share with you. So to close out, Lilith, can you tell our listeners where they can find IDEA and the podcast? I sure can. So you can find IDEA at infilledmonton.com. Um, they're also on Instagram and Twitter at infilledmonton and on Facebook at infilyeg. 
So the podcast episodes um, are also on the IDEA website uh, and you can subscribe to In Development uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on various different platforms, so pretty flexible on your end. So thanks for listening again. My name is Lilith. And my name is Allison. Have a great holiday season and tune in in January for the first episode of 2024.